up. I think we're getting some good registrations already. And uh, I know that I talked to a couple of people today who've never been to one and are thinking seriously about coming. So I've heard this also from some other people. So this will be good. And um, then just a reminder about the History of Doctrine course that starts Monday night at 7 o'clock, January 23rd. So that will be, they will be live streaming it and... Um, uh, all the files will be ready, audio files will be ready on the DBM website, so that'll be available. And then the annual congregation meeting is coming immediately after church, February the 5th. That's in about, I think, two weeks from this coming Sunday. So all are invited to attend so you know what's going on with the church and Dean Bible Ministries, and then only members can vote, and we will be uh, voting. And uh, I guess that's about it. We do need some volunteers to help with the Chafer Conference. So uh, there's uh, information in the back, and you can sign up. Reg- or, excuse me, registrations open uh, for the Pastors Conference. You can sign up on the deanbibleministries.org/news page. And we also need volunteers uh, to help out in lots of different different areas. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are oriented to uh, worship the Lord through studying His Word this evening, making sure we're in right relationship with Him, and that means, if necessary, to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together because to study your word because you are our creator and our redeemer and because your word is truth. Your word is powerful. Your word changes us, transforms us under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, tonight we continue our study in this epistle of Paul's to, Paul's to uh, the Philippians and praying that uh, the lessons we learn here will be of uh, great spiritual value to us as God the Holy Spirit stores it away in our soul for future recall, for application in times of difficulty. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to focus, concentrate, and study as we go through this passage. In Christ's name, amen. Now, 
few of you who are here remember a good friend of mine who is now with the Lord, Gene Brown. Now, Gene was really one of a kind. He was a unique individual, and as Gene grew older and matured, as I hope is true for many of us, um, he just became more and more dedicated to Scripture. I mean, he had a real passion to know the Scripture and to encourage others to read the Scripture. And uh, some of you here were even given uh, copies of a Through the Bible in a Year Bible. There are several of those on the market. You can go look at Amazon and see any number of those kinds of things, which are helpful. You have different kinds of Bibles like that for Bible reading. You have chronological Bibles, which rearrange the text so that you can read the historical parts in chronological order. And uh, Gene just had a passion about trying to get people into the Word. Uh, um, he was a man of the text. Now, some people have a resistance to reading the Bible because they say, well, I don't understand it. Well, the hard part is that if you don't read it, you will never understand it. We all go through that. I, I, I read passages. When you read, you're not reading to, you're reading at like a familiarization tour. You're just trying to who's who, what's what, where's where. Most good study Bibles have maps in the back. You can look things up there. But when I'm just reading to understand the flow and to, to pay attention to what the Word says, uh, I'm, I don't get, let myself get distracted. If there's something in a verse I don't understand it, I put a question mark out in the margin. Um, I, I, I underline verses that stand out to me. Uh, they may be talking about God's attributes, and so I'll just put God up in the top margin. Or they may be talking about salvation. I'll put salvation up there. I'll put I'll put a salvation one, salvation two, salvation three for whether it's phase one, phase two, or phase three. Lots of different ways that you can annotate your Bible. I've got a couple of Bibles at home that have given to me uh, by dear saints who have been taking notes for years. And trust me, I cannot read the text of Scripture because the notes obliterate the text that's on the page on numerous pages and uh, and so it's important to to know the word and to, to we're to hide God's word in our heart and uh, so we have to do that that's why we have Bible reading plans up on the Dean Bible Ministries uh, uh, website but Gene was a great guy and we could talk about just about anything and he had a mind that was really probing a lot of stuff and we would talk about uh, messages. He would visit other churches as he traveled, and he would ask me questions, and we would talk about uh, problem passages. We would talk about problem pastors. We would talk about problem churches. And uh, just, just he had a mind that was just really, uh, really probing things. And one of our favorite topics had to do with how God often interferes in our lives and keeps us from fulfilling plans. I mean, it may just be your plan for the day, and or it may be your plan for the week, or it may be your plan for the next couple of years, but God has a way of intervening, and they don't work out, and we tend to be frustrated. And Gene and I had similar trends in our sin nature so that we would get pretty upset when we couldn't 
fulfill some plans that we um, that we had made, and we came to the re- realization that that yes, Gene and Robbie and all of you, that God really does have a better plan, and usually when our plans are frustrated, uh, God is involved and he's directing things for whatever the reason may be and we may not know until eternity but we need to relax and understand that um, God is as my friend Pastor John Hint says God knows what he's doing more than 95% of the time and we don't know it more than 1% of the time so we need to just learn to relax and the verse that really captures this is Romans 8.28. And I mentioned this in the previous lesson that we had uh, related to uh, our exposition of Philippians chapter 2. We spent about the last uh, six lessons along with missing Thanksgiving and I think one Thursday night I was sick and a few other things, so it took us a while. The previous lesson of exposition, which was on Philippians 1, um, 12 through 14, I think the date on that was around the 5th of November. So that was a while ago. Y'all remember what that was about, don't you? Just just testing. It took me a while to go back and read my notes and figure out where I was and what was going on. So if I had to, I know uh, I know you did as well. And one of the points I made was about Romans Romans 8.28. And I don't know if I have this up here. No, I don't think I put it in the slides. Romans 8.28, as it's stated in the New King James translation, says, And we know that all things work together for good. Now, we know that God is the one who's doing that, but there are a couple of ancient manuscripts that inserted that. Um, so you have about four of these Egyptian manuscripts that, that certain textual critics rely on. and But that those Egyptian manuscripts are really split. It's just a man, very small minority of about four or five that, that have that reading that, and we know God causes all things to work together for good. But um, you find that in the NASB 95. You find it in the RSV, which came out back in the 50s. And for those of you who are younger than 70 or 60, you wouldn't remember this, but the RSV translated uh, the verse in Isaiah uh, 7.14, instead of that a virgin will conceive, translated it, a young woman will conceive. And you would have thought that... that um, uh, the earthquakes of Revelation had come because uh, evangelicals just erupted in anger and the printing industry understood that there are some verses that you ought not mess with because th- then a vast majority of Christians won't buy those translations. But Christians are so biblically illiterate today that they'll buy anything, including the message and you know, a couple of others that are pretty pathetic in terms of their uh, attempts to try to communicate at a very basic language to people who are not well-educated, which is much of our culture. 
But anyway, so that was the RSV that came out in the early 50s. But when they revised it and came out with the new RSV, the NRSV, they went back to the original and they translated it. And uh, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, so that often happens in these kinds of things that uh, they'll, they'll rethink their position. But that's what Paul's life exemplified. That's what we see in this section is that Paul is encouraging the Philippian readers with the fact that though his life looks like God put him down a, a, a dead-end road and he's been stuck in prison for almost five years, two years at Caesarea by the sea on the Mediterranean coast there in Jerusalem, just north of Joppa back then, Tel Aviv now. And then um, then the uh, shipwreck that occurred when they were going to, it, taking him to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And then he spent two years in house arrest. He rented a house and he there was guarded by the Praetorian Guard. Uh, every day. They gave him a certain amount of freedom within the house, but he basically was restricted. And that was, that was the situation. And for a lot of Christians, we see references in Ephesians and other places. They believe that, that, what's going on? Satan has really won a victory. But when Satan sets up roadblocks, God turns them into stepping stones. And instead of retarding the expansion of the gospel, uh, it led to the enhancement of the expansion of the gospel. Because so many people were coming to Paul that they were getting, he was able to just, without traveling, he was able to train and uh, disciple men and then send them back. And then he had a a guard that was stationed with him every day, and the guards changed, and he would lead one to the Lord, and then the next one to the Lord, and then the next one to the Lord, and they would go back, and they would spread the word among the Praetorian guard so that a vast number of them heard the gospel, as and it expanded even into the household of, of Caesar. And so we, we learned that from this chapter. So what we perceive to be a roadblock is often uh, God working to uh, provide us with a greater opportunity uh, for for the gospel. For the gospel, so Satan can't bind the gospel. He's not going to restrict it. We think, oh well, look at what Satan's done. Yeah, well, let's see how God's going to just roll the tanks right over it, uh, because that's what that's what happens. Uh, I was thinking about what's going on in in Ukraine, that that Jim has had this school there for the last 22, 23 years, and a lot of graduates. Some have gone into uh, we don't they don't really have full time professional ministry like we have here because churches don't support like they do in the U.S. So most pastors work another job, but they have a church, and they have ministries, and they're missionaries, and many of the graduates are teaching Sunday school in a church they're going to, or they're involved in some sort of evangelistic ministry. Some are involved, like Luda, uh, in Campus Crusade. Lots of things are going on. And 
all of a sudden this war comes and people who may have just been sitting along coasting in their spiritual life suddenly have to face a huge, huge problem with this invasion and suddenly the word of God starts becoming real to them and they start getting involved. Maybe they get, uh, maybe they get into the army and, and they start dealing with real fears of death. And so they begin to pray and they talk to other soldiers and they're scared. They give them the gospel and we're seeing a huge expansion of the gospel as a result of this war. Now, I would never wish a war like this on anyone, but God uses these things to bring about uh, the expansion of the gospel. And every now and then, I just have to make this point, every now and then, I've been hearing it from people a little more recently, people think that it's like choosing a president. Choosing a president is not like choosing a pastor. You have different criteria. Uh, choosing to support a country that is attempting to have a democracy doesn't mean that everything that they do has to be of a high moral quality. That would have never been a, an issue with most of the allies the U.S. has had over the years because nations are, are just not that way. But I have heard several people and some on television say that that that, um, that Putin is anti-Christian. No, he's not. I mean, not Putin, but that that uh, Zelensky's anti-Christian. No, he's not. Putin is. The Russians passed a law in about ninety-five or ninety-six that said it was illegal for any religion, by that they mean any denomination, to um, be in Russia unless they had been there twenty years prior. Well, that takes you back to about 1976. So a lot of evangelical groups and denominations that went in there in the uh, after the uh, Soviet Union broke up in 91-92 uh, weren't there 20 years before. So in effect, what that did was it, and it was motivated by the Russian Orthodox Church, what it did was it, it moved a lot of evangelical ministries and missionaries out of Russia. And I knew several uh, who were over there who uh, left. And a lot of ministries just moved to, to Ukraine because they had a greater freedom in Ukraine. And the pressure from Putin is that, it, and he said this just after the war started, that he was going to, if he was going to capture Ukraine, and he was going to uh, get rid of everything but the Russian Orthodox Church. That's not religious freedom. And I saw a video that was uh, filmed, YouTube video that was filmed about uh, that same time This was what, that, that some of this was going on about uh, three or four weeks ago that was filmed with a Ukrainian pastor who volunteers because they don't have an official chaplain position in the Ukrainian army and not only, uh, and he's involved in a school, Kiev Theological Seminary, that's where he had gone, but he was a student before that with Eager, Smolyar, and is good friends with Eager. And he was interviewed, and uh, coincidentally, just about three days before that came out, uh, Jim Myers had talked to our Friday morning pastors group and saying a lot of these same things, 
And one of the things I've heard Jim say for 22 years, and he's been living in the former Soviet Union republics like, I mean, not republics, but countries like like Belarus and Ukraine, observing all of this for, for uh, 30 years. And he said, there's no country in Europe. That's what this other guy said. They didn't collude. They, they said there's no country in Europe that has the kind of religious freedom that Ukraine has. And I think that's part of the angelic uh, conflict, angelic revolt, is that Satan does not want the gospel spreading in Ukraine. And so if the Russians took it over, they would shut down all the freedom that's in Ukraine. But what's interesting is this attack has fostered an explosion of evangelism uh, around the country. So you, you, we we never can look at something and say well, that that's just absolutely terrible because God is using it uh, for his own purposes. And that's exactly what Paul is saying about his uh, his Roman imprisonment, that he is uh, encouraging his readers in Philippi as well as in Ephesus and other places that Satan is not winning, that the gospel is expanding, and that is the theme here that we see in this section from verse 12 down to uh, verse 18. So what I want to do is just review a little bit, looking at the major themes that we saw in uh, verses 3 through 11. Just to remind you, the prologue goes from 1-3, the beginning of the prayer, all the way down to 2-26, okay? From 1-3, not 2-26, 1-3 to 1-26, that's the the uh, prologue, the introduction, as it were. And there's two sections to it. So there's the section of the prayer, the thanksgiving from 3 through 7, and then the, uh, or 3 through 8, and then the prayer from 9 to 11. And then we have a second part, a development of the prologue, the themes of the prologue, in verses 12 down to 26. And many of the things that Paul introduces in 3 through 11 are expanded in uh, in 12 through 26. Now, the reason these kinds of things are important is because it helps us trace the thinking of the writer. You, you can't just get so focused on the words and the phrases that you lose sight of the p- sentences and the paragraphs and the overall context. That's how you come to understand the flow of thought, the rationales that are there and what, what Paul is talking about. So the more we get into Scripture, the more we uh, look at these things. So we see the introduction of the word uh, koinonia or fellowship in uh, 1.5 where Paul says for uh, he gives thanks and prays for them because of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So we have sort of this knee-jerk reaction when we see the word koinonia that we translate it fellowship, but like every word it has nuances. And one of the main ideas here is fellowship is really the idea of partnership. 
It has to do with two people or two entities going in the same direction to accomplish the same goal. And so it's more than just the idea of a social connection. We often think of fellowship in terms of having a good social time together, but the Bible never uses it in that way. Uh, Getting together and going out to dinner is not Christian fellowship. Now, if you get together and you go out to dinner and part of what you are talking about, it has to do with the things of the Lord, then it is Christian fellowship. It has to do with moving in a common common direction. So we saw that, that Paul talks about fellowship in the gospel, which in the context of Philippians is their financial partnership with Paul. They were the first and only congregation that began to uh, financially support him, and this began as soon as he had left uh, Philippi. The good work that they are doing... Um, when it talks about the fact that uh, in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is not talking about salvation. It is talking about this good work of this financial partnership in the gospel, according to the context. So this is, the good work is this financial partnership. And Paul's hope that he expresses there is being confident of this thing is his hope. It's his confident expectation that God is going to mature this work. He's going to bring it to its intended uh, purpose and, and end. Uh, a fourth thing, Paul and the Philippians have a common mindset. Uh, this is the word phreneo, which has to do with uh, a way of thinking. And this is their common mission. And when we get into chapter 2, where uh, uh, Paul is going to say in verse 5, let this mind be in you, that has to do with the word uh, phroneo. So this is important. It's it, And having that common mindset enables you to reach the common goal that's that where the goal is more important than individual self-interest. And that problem with individual self-interest comes up in the passage we're looking at now. So he says this work would bear fruit from the beginning until the day of Christ because it's generational. And those that Paul led to the Lord, they'll lead others to the Lord, they'll lead others to the Lord, and generation and centuries down the way, that what the, the result of... the the Philippian support of the Apostle Paul continues to bear fruit even to this day. We saw that the Philippian believers were joint partners with Paul both in his chains, he talks about, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And that foreshadows chapter chapter 3. So in verse 7 he says, "...just as it is right for me to think this of you all," because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, which is a metaphor for his imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We'll see the words defense of the gospel come up again in the second part of the prologue, and we'll see it come up in chapter 3. And then seventh, those who grow in love as work. Uh, grow in love is worked out by participation in the gospel ministry. 
will grow in pure and uh, grow in purity and blamelessness until the day of Christ. And the end result, lastly, eight. The end result uh, is um, the end result uh, will be not is the but will be characterized by the fruits of righteousness. Okay. That gives us just a little bit of a way of going back to the beginning. So in these verses, which we'll review 12 through 14 and then go through 15 to 18 tonight, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the progress of the gospel so that it has become apparent uh, has become evident to the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what we see here in verse 12 is his topical sentence. You remember learning about topical sentences and writing a paragraph back when you were about the seventh grade, just like yesterday, don't you? Well, in the topical sentence, you're going to say what you're going to talk about. And the topical sentence is that what happened to me has actually turned out for the progress of the gospel. It didn't look like it. It looked like we hit a major roadblock and I was being isolated in a cul-de-sac, but it's turned out for the progress of the gospel. So that, that's the next key phrase, and that indicates a result. And it it tells us one result at the beginning of verse 13, and another result in verse 14. So we'd outline it something like this, and I just put the first line up there. The first, I use this other kind of outlining that a lot of you may not be familiar with, but all everything in your left column is an A, B, C, D, or 1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, or, excuse me, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, and they're all A's. And then the next line, they're all B's, and they're labeled so you can count both alphabetically or you can count numerically, and I like that better. So anyway, the prologue is, as I've just said, is 1, 3 through 26, 1B was comprised of thanksgiving and prayer in 1, 3 through 11, and 2B is the biographical prologue, which we're focusing on now. So we get to 2B here, Paul's topical sentence, what has happened to me turned out to further the gospel. And it basically gives three results. First result in verse 13, second result in verse 14, and this third result in verse 15. So the first result is that it becomes evident to two groups, to the Praetorian Guard and to the rest. So the, that, that is the rest of those that were uh, associated with the Praetorian Guard, not just the ones that were, in, um, that, that were with Paul, and others, their families and uh, those in the household of Caesar. The second result then is given in verse 14, and most of the brethren became more confident. They saw Paul's witness, and he wasn't fearful. He wasn't worried. He wasn't saying, well, you know, I've just hit this rough spot. I'm just, I can't really carry out the ministry as I planned it. I'm just going to have to wait. And when, when the trial's over, then, then I'll, uh, 
I'll catch a ride and go to Greece or go to uh, Asia Minor, and then I'll continue my ministry after I get out of jail. Is that what he's doing? No, he, he realizes I am in this situation because the Lord put me here, so I'm going to start witnessing to everybody. What did he do in Acts? We read this in Acts. When he was in, uh, in prison there at what was also called a praetorium in Caesarea Maritima, which means Caesarea by the sea, when he was there, what was he doing? Well, he would be brought in by the Roman governor or the Roman procurator, and there might be uh, the the king of uh, one of the regions that were broken up by um, after Herod died, and he might be there, or some other person might be there, and they would say, "Oh," and they would start talking about Paul and say, "You can't believe what this guy says. We'll have him come in and talk to us." And so Paul was coming in, and he was witnessing every time he had the opportunity. And then when he got on the ship to go to Rome, he's witnessing to them. And they really started listening to him when it when they got caught in that great storm and it appeared that they were going to have a shipwreck. And he said, if you just do what I say and stay on the ship, everybody will survive. And, and they did that. And then when he got to Rome, he's uh, giving the gospel to uh, his jailers, to the Praetorian Guard. So he recognized that that his ministry was shifted by God to to what it was to communicating firsthand to these ind- individuals, and the result of that 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 these Christians in Rome who were afraid of per, uh, persecution, and and then um, that they began to get get confident. They saw Paul's confidence. Confidence is. Uh, contagious. And so they began to uh, talk to others more boldly about the gospel, and they were not being ruled by their fear. But there's a third result, and that is that not only were some proclaiming the gospel uh, out of correct motives, but there's a group that's jealous of Paul and they're motivated by gain, and they're vote motivated by uh, other uh, out of jealousy and strife, and so they're thinking that they're going to uh, somehow uh, create a problem for Paul, and so they wanted to just add affliction to him, and it doesn't bother him at all, even if they're out of fellowship, even if they're preaching the wrong thing, uh, for the I mean the right thing for the wrong reason. Because that's between them and the Lord. He's just glad that the gospel is being proclaimed. So that's the, that's the third result. So that's the outline. So in verse 12, he says, I want you to know. I want to inform you about something so that you can come to know. That's the sense of the Greek word uh, for, for knowledge there, gnosko. Uh, he says that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that's the topical sentence. I'm just going to review what I just said, uh, and maybe this is less confusing than the outline. And then you have a word, so that, and that is telling the result. So it tells one result here, and then you have this word and here, which is a connective that connects several things together. It could be two things or three things or four things, 
But th- so it's evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest. So there's two groups there that it becomes evident to that his chains are in Christ, that, that his, he's devoted to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, and that connective is the second group that's impacted. Most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord having become confident by my chains that they're not discouraged anymore. They've seen what he's doing, and this is beginning to motivate them and light a fire under them uh, to give the gospel uh, to those they're around. And so they're emboldened to speak the word uh, without fear. So those are the, those, those two sections. Uh, also, it's interesting that when you look at verse 12, it said, Paul says that this has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, and I've translated this as the progress or expansion of the gospel. Because what we're seeing here, looking, especially looking back on it from our perspective some 20 centuries later, 19 centuries later, is, is that the, the gospel is just beginning to really take root in Rome. It hasn't spread to Spain yet. Paul will get out of this imprisonment, and tradition has it that he took the gospel to Spain and also to Gaul, possibly to Britain. We don't know for sure. And that, so this is just the beginning of that expansion of the gospel. And here I think the word gospel, we've spent the last six classes, lessons, looking at gospel and its meaning that this is the good news about Jesus Christ, but in some passages, I think here it is more than simply how to be saved, the good news of how to shift from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that's simply trusting in Christ, understanding something about who Jesus is, that he is the God-man, that he is without sin, and he's able to die for our sins. And he uh, died for our sins on the cross, was buried, and then he rose on the third day. we gone through that so that that's just the beginning of a new life and the gospel also includes learning about how to live the new life and having that abundant life that uh, Jesus promised us when he said I did not come like a thief to steal and destroy but I came to give life that's regeneration and to give it abundantly that is the expansion into uh, Christian way of life and growing to spiritual maturity. So we have this word uh, uh, prokope for furtherance or expansion of the gospel here in verse 12, and then it shows up again in verse 25. Now that's the kind of literary device where you see repetition of certain words that sort of bracket a section you have to let the text tell you what it's talking about. Now, it's hard to do sometimes with an English translation because English translators are prone to uh, to translate a word one way in one verse and another way in another verse, and so you don't see that. Uh, that's what's important for a pastor to know the original languages so that he can uh, dig this stuff out. So this tells us that this whole section from... Uh, from verse 12 down to verse 26, is an integrated uh, section. 
And it's all talking about what? Very encouraging topic that, that despite whatever we see that looks like it's going to retard Christianity, that the gospel always overpowers it. And we're going to see that until the Lord returns at the rapture. Now, there may be a time near the rapture when things de- deteriorate, but we don't know that. Some people think that that's what the scriptures indicate is there'll be great apostasy before the uh, Antichrist is revealed and before the rapture. But that's uh, there's, that's debatable. And there are many who believe if they're going to First Thessalonians, I think it's around First Thessalonians 2.2 2 or 2.4, that that word apostasia there can also mean departure. That's the root idea, departure. And it refers to the departure of ships. It also refers to the d- departure from the truth. So the departure there can in- easily be-, be a reference to the rapture, that the rapture has to occur before the Antichrist is revealed. And that's, that's the view that I take. So in verses 13 and 14, we have these, these two results that are laid out for us. And that is that it, the gospel, uh, it makes it evident. It goes to the Praetorian Guard and to the rest. And it's evident that Paul's chains are in Christ. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Praetorian Guard. Who is the Praetorian Guard, and what does this term mean? Now, there's a reason that I'm going into this and and taking some time on that, and that is because they, um, the Praetorian Guard, uh, this is, we think of it as the elite guard related to, uh, the, 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 related to Caesar in Rome. That's not quite true. So, uh, Who's the Praetorian Guard? Well, the term appears only here in the epistles, but it does appear in Acts and it does appear in the Gospels. The Praetorium, uh, Praetorium with I-U-M as an ending, is the seat of the governor and so where his troops are headquartered. So if Pontius Pilate is normally at Caesarea Maritima, then that's the, where the praetorium is. But on feast days, when you have these huge crowds coming into Jerusalem, and Passover was at one of those times, that uh, Pilate would go to, to Jerusalem. And, and he would stay at the palace of Herod. For those of you who have been to Israel with me, that is located on the west side of, of the old city of Jerusalem, just south of, of, of where the Citadel of David is located, just south of the Jaffa Gate. And there's evidence of, of that, uh, that is, that is there. And it's been, uh, excavated, but they haven't published on it yet. So no, a lot of people don't even know about this. Uh, anyway, so that's the Praetorium. Uh, later, when Felix and Festus are there in Caesarea and Paul is a prisoner, uh, it states that the, that Caesarea is the praetorium. So what's Paul talking about? That raises a question as to where is he imprisoned. So that's just letting you know where I'm, where I'm going with this. 
The root word is the Latin word praetor, which designated the tent of the general in a military encampment where the headquarters is. Uh, the word eventually is applied to the residence of a governor or other official, such as Pontius Pilate. So it's not a term that is necessarily restricted to Rome. It can also describe the barracks of the soldiers. And, for example, we're told that Jesus Christ appeared before Pilate in the praetorium, and as I just said, that's on the western wall just south of the Citadel of David today or the Jaffa Gate, somewhere in that vicinity. So why is this important? It's, impo- it's important because if it's not a technical term for something in Rome, then there are some who suggest that this is not Paul's Roman imprisonment that he's speaking about in Philippi. Now, you're looking at me like I just grew a third eye or something, because maybe you haven't heard that. But about five or six years ago, I was talking to a pastor who was doing some study on this, and he was all off and running down this this rabbit trail on this, that Paul was probably not in Rome when he wrote some of the prison epistles. And so because I know we live in an environment today when people listen to me, they listen to Andy Woods, they listen to a few other uh, pastors that they may have heard this. And I don't think he ended up going that way because I talked to him a couple of years later and I mentioned it and he said, well, I'm not so excited about that anymore. So, uh, But I don't know if he ever taught it. And so I, my job is to protect the sheep from the wrong things that are out there. And so I just want to spend a couple of minutes on this. So here's the issue. Acts 23.35 refers to Herod's praetorium in Caesarea. So is he in Rome or is he in Caesarea? Because remember, he's two years there in, um, in, in Caesarea Maritima, and then he's two years in Rome. But there are others who suggest that, well, he was also in prison in Philippi. But why would he be writing a letter from the jail in Philippi to the Philippians? That doesn't seem to make any sense. And he wasn't in that jail, but overnight. So he didn't have enough time to have written anything. The same thing's true about Jerusalem. When he got arrested on the temple precincts um, by, the, by the temple police, then um, they pretty quickly got, the Romans came in, took charge, and got him to Caesarea. So he really doesn't have any time to write anything from Jerusalem. So you have the possibility of Jerusalem and uh, Philippi, which we pretty much uh, discounted. Uh, he's in Caesarea for a long time, and he's in Rome, according to Acts 28. And some have suggested Ephesus. In fact, I have a couple of commentaries at home from 19th century uh, commentar- uh, commenters that take that position. So it, at one time, it was a popular position. But it's uh, pretty much discredited for a number of reasons. And I just want to look at some of the verses here because if you somebody really spent a lot of time on these verses, it might make you confused. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Well, that certainly sounds like he may have been thrown to the wolves or the lions in the Colosseum in Ephesus. The problem with that is he's, Acts tells us uh, that he was in Ephesus 
and he taught for two years, and Acts has absolutely no mention of any kind of time frame where he would be in prison for any length of time. Not only that, but the most significant part is Paul is a Roman citizen. That's the card Paul plays when he's put into jail overnight in Philippi because he, they were beaten by the magistrates prior to their uh, being put into prison, and this violated Roman law. If you were a Roman citizen, you had due process guaranteed for you, and you could not have these kinds of things happen to you. So this whole idea that when Paul says that he's fought with beasts at Ephesus, that may not be literal. I think it's not. You know, we talk about the bestiality of the Russian troops in the rape of Bucha in Kiev. We talk about the bestiality of the guards at Auschwitz. We don't mean they are literally beasts, but we attribute to them these negative characteristics of beasts. And so that uh, Paul definitely had to deal with false teachers and with opposition in Ephesus as well as in Asia. And that's what's referenced here in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, where he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't know whether that's ignorant, comma, brethren, or ignorant, no comma, brethren, where they're ignorant, brethren. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now, we think of Asia as China, uh, India, uh, Eastern Russia, but Asia was a province in the western part of Turkey at the time of the Roman Empire. So that's what he's talking about here. We had our trouble came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure above, above strength so that we despaired even of life. He, he's not talking about um, being in prison there. There's nothing to indicate that. He's just talking about opposition and adversity. Uh, verse 9, he says, We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. We just thought we were going to die from all the opposition, that this was a potential, but... That doesn't mean he's in prison. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us. So anyway, that that verse is one that is used, and there's nothing there that indicates that they're in prison. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 5 has a little more going for it, where he says, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults. If you haven't read in um, Acts, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I encourage you to do that sometime, especially if you feel a little down, that you don't have any reason to feel down. Uh, there Paul talks about what he has gone through, and he says, In all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, that's whipping, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So he lists all of these things, and he says by on, in verse 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. So all of these things going on, 
and he had a rough time. And Second Corinthians eleven twenty three, he talks about the fact that he's been involved in labors more abundant than these false apostles, in stripes above measure that he's received uh, whippings with a uh, Ro- Roman flagellum uh, more than once. And in death's often the possibility of death. In fact, in Damascus, they, they, they whipped him, let him down over and, and thought he was dead, but the other believers got him and uh, they lowered him down over the wall and, um, and uh, brought him to safety. So his life was threatened. And the point is that no place fits it like Rome. You look at Acts chapter uh, 28, and um, it, the, that chapter talks about the fact that he had a house and that he was kept under house arrest there. In Acts 23.11 says, uh, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And in Acts 28.30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him. And in Acts 28:16, now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So that's definite. And the Roman imprisonment, and, and what you will see, and Acts just talks about one Roman imprisonment. But we believe that that the circumstances described in the pastoral epistles, the first first Timothy and Titus, uh, he's talking about his imprisonment, and then in Second Timothy is right before he dies, that he got out of the first imprisonment after Acts twenty eight, and tradition says he went to Spain and France and some other places, and then he came back to Rome, and then he was arrested a second time, and that ended in his uh, martyrdom. So it is, uh, I think it is sure that, that the praetorium here refers to the praetorium guard that is there in Rome in association uh, with the household of, of uh, Caesar. Now the third result is what is described uh, in verse 15. It's described in, if we look at verse 15, um, it talks about these two different types of people who were proclaiming the gospel. And in verse 15 we read, uh, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Now when we look at that verse, um, talking about envy and strife, we find References to that in Galatians 5, talking about the works of the flesh. And Paul goes on to explain it even more in verse 16. He says, the former, that is those who are preaching from envy and strife, he explains it a little more, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chain. So their motivation is, well, we're going to get out there and we're going to do our, our, our little ministry thing and it's just going to be, uh, it's going to irritate and aggravate Paul. So their motivation is to just heap more uh, affliction on him. And this 
picks up the idea that had been first introduced in the first part of the prologue in Philippians 1.7, where, where Paul writes uh, in the second part of the verse, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospels, you all are partakers with me of grace. So verse 16 is expanding on that and saying that uh, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, supposing to add affliction to my chain. So selfish ambition is a product of self-centeredness, self-absorption. It's a product of the arrogant skills. And the word that it, it translates is eretheia, which is a Greek word meaning selfish ambition or arrogant, self-centered, driven strife. So it's it's causing problems and dissension among um, among the believers. In Philipp in um, Philippians two three, Paul expands on this idea when he talks about the importance of being of the same mind and being truly humble. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Galatians 5.20 lists it as part of the works of the flesh. And James 3.16 says, "Where in, for where envy and self-seeking, that's eretheia, exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So they're clearly operating on their sin nature, but they are proclaiming a true gospel. Can you think of anybody on the scene today that does that? Just turn on your TV and look at a number of the religious channels, and you'll find a lot of those who are involved in the health and wealth gospel. A lot of their theology, a lot of their Christology, a lot of the their things on the uh, gifts of the Spirit, and the, the desire for wealth, promoting greed and lust, are all done from the works of the flesh. But what's interesting is a lot of them at least get the gospel out there. And for that, we ought to be thankful. And, you know, that doesn't mean we're validating their ministry. Sometimes people get that kind of an idea. Well, if I say something good about them, then I'm validating everything. Well, then Paul's got a real problem here. And Paul said this under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he's, he's going to conclude by asking the rhetorical question in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice. So he's saying they, they had a clear gospel. Their motives were wrong. The consequences of disruption and strife were, were clearly evident. But at least they got the gospel right and people could get saved from it. Verse 17, he says about these, uh, uh, about the, the ones who are preaching it from the right motivation. He says the latter out of love, their love for the Lord, their love for Paul, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. See, he brings in this idea of appointed for the defense of the gospel. That is uh, a, a development on the verse that related to the previous verse also. In Philippians 1.7, in the beginning of the prologue, inasmuch as both in my chains 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, that's really going to be expanded when we get to chapter 3. So what I'm doing is I'm showing how, you know, the Bible is great literature. It's well written. He, he introduces his themes at the beginning here and there, expands on them a little here, a little there, and until he gets to the full explanation. So he is appointed for the defense of the gospel. The word appointed is not a word related to election or predestination, but is the idea of giving uh, giving somebody a specific task, to putting them in a specific place. And that relates to his appointment and calling as, a, as an apostle. And he talks about that, for example, in Ephesians 3, he talks about that as the grace that was given to me. And that refers to not just his gift as an apostle, but the appointment to it, that it's not just his salvation, but it's his salvation and appointment to be an apostle. And he is to defend the gospel. And the word in Greek is apologia. He's not apologizing for the gospel. It's a technical term for a legal, a structured, logical legal defense. And so that's what we are called to do. In First um, uh, Peter 3.16, we are to give an answer. That's the same word, apologia, give an answer for the hope that is in us. We have to understand how to uh, explain and, and uh, explain the gospel and why we believe what we believe. And that's important because people live in a world where they've heard all kinds of things, horrible things about Christianity and that there's no evidence for it. And all you have to do is watch the History Channel or watch PBS, some of its programs and others. There's a constant attack on the historicity and the literalness of the Bible. And people hear that, so they don't think they can trust the Bible. But there are answers to all those things, and we can show them, and we can point it out, and that's part of what we are to do as as believers. We have to understand those things. That's why I I have series on the Bible and on some other things to try to give people the the biblical ammunition and historical ammunition against those things. So we come then to the last verse. And this is just not how a lot of us are wired. We would say, I'm just not going to have anything to do with them. I can't say anything good if they, because they get so many things wrong, I'm not even going to say anything good about them if they get the gospel right. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, I'm just thankful they got the gospel right because people are going to be saved from that. And so for that, I rejoice. Uh, despite the fact of all the other negatives that are there. So that takes us through the first part of this uh, biographical uh, prologue, and then he's going to shift a little bit in verse 19 and give the basis for hope, because he says in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. And so he is able to say, whether I live or whether I die and I'm face to face with the Lord, I'm happy either way. I can rejoice. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So how how can anything bad really come of this? So that's to be our attitude. So next Thursday night we'll come back and we will 
uh, cover the rest of this uh, opening prologue. Father, thank you for this time. Help us to orient to the fact that when we go through difficulties, when we go through trials, when we go through plans that are upset and changed, that that you're still in control, and we know that all things work together for good. That doesn't mean they're all good, but that uh, they work together for good in your plan for those who love God. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to relax when things don't get go our way, recognizing that you're still in control. And, Father, we are uh, challenged by this attitude of Paul's to rejoice even for those who are teaching a lot of wrong things. As long as they're getting the gospel right, we can rejoice in that, even though the rest is bad. And we know that we need a little help with that. So we pray that we might be grace-oriented, as Paul is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.